Dave's Psych Lectures, part of the Thunderbird 6 Podcasting Network. psychology or anybody who studies psychology at all, this is why we do it. Beginning. Everybody, almost all you guys are, are psych pages, right? So how many people went into psychology because they wanted to cure and help the crazy people? Yeah, that's good. That's good. Me too. That's why most of us go into it. Like that's the thing. You want to help people. Uh, I use crazy, it's a technical term, use the DSM four. Uh, no it's not. But you want to help people, right? You want to help depressed people and schizophrenic people, or maybe you want to get your own TV show and you know help people that that, that, that can't commit to a relationship. Uh, you, know, you want to help people, and that's a very laudable goal. And I think this is why most of us start doing psychology. I know, I guess I just I know I did it was because I felt this would be something I could you know. I could do well, perhaps. I figured out quickly that I had enough personal problems of my own that it would probably be a mistake. But, um, but yeah, I mean, this is why most of us get into it, I think. Um, so I think it'll be of interest to all of us, even if this isn't your area. So you probably didn't think you could do use evolutionary theory to, to help understand disorders. Well, you'd be wrong. Um, now, I must say, I'm being a little sarcastic there, because, in fact, most of this stuff is really in its infancy. Right? Probably started that best by doing like mate selection, personality stuff. That was probably where evolutionary theory has done its, had its most impact. Uh, then learning, cognition for sure. I think looking at disorders and social things. But looking at disorders is really a pretty hard thing to do. And I think this is partially because of the bias of the people that started out by doing evolutionary psychology, because most of them were experimental psychologists that were interested in biology. And those people didn't tend to be the people that went off and did stuff to try to help people. They were people that were doing sort of more um, science for science sake, you know, pure research kind of stuff. I think that's why. That's just my guess. So this may be, it may be because of that, that they just haven't been interested in this as much, because that doesn't tend to be the interest of people. Right? Because I mean, when people say to me when I, when I meet, they meet me and ask me what I do, and I say I'm a psychologist, and they give me the old, you know, "Are you analyzing me?" And I usually reply with, "Yes, I've already, it's already finished. You're a very simple person." Um, but I mean, I usually say that stuff doesn't interest me. That's just not my area. That's not what I do. I'm more interested in you know memory and birds. Just it interests me a lot more. So, and those of us that have that background, the sort of evolutionary biology background tend to be on that camp more than the help people kind of talking therapy camp, which is all good stuff, and I don't, I'm not making fun of it at all. It's really important work, and I'm glad people do it. It just isn't my thing. But I think it, it divides that. Um, one thing you've got to understand, it doesn't make these things any less problematic if we understand their evolutionary underpinnings. Because just because something has evolved, it doesn't mean that it's right or wrong, right? It doesn't make it moral or immoral, right or wrong, good or bad, it just is. That's a naturalistic fallacy, right? The idea that 
Just because something is natural doesn't make it good or bad. It just is. Right? And we have this idea, and I think it's, 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 I mean, marketing shows us this, right? Things are marketed to us as all natural. Right? Which means nothing, really, when you think about it, right? I, I've had friends say, oh, I only take mushrooms, man, because they're natural. I never drop acid. <laughs> you know? And you look at them and say, would you eat a big pile of shit? Because that's natural. You know, you wouldn't, of course. But I mean, the thing, unless you're into that, and I don't want to know. But um, we have this idea that natural is good and right, and then, of course, that's this sort of idea of the natural fa- naturalistic fallacy, the idea that if it evolved, it must be the right way to do something, right? I would argue very clearly, I think, that, it, that, that women did more childcare in the EEA than men did. And then I, but then you can't then make the leap, and it, it, we evolved that way. I would not then make the leap, however, that women, that men shouldn't do childcare and it should all be left to women. That would, that would be ridiculous, right? That would be saying, well, well, it's natural, so who cares? It's also natural that we, you know, fight each other. I don't think that's a very good idea. Even in hockey anymore. I used to pro hockey fights, and I'm now I've come around to being against it. But that's another matter. I just want hockey to come back, man. It's great watching TSN. They have the old hockey games on. It's great. Oh, look, great game. From, but I know what's going to happen. I still watch games, and when Montreal scores, I go, yeah! Even though I know that they're going to win. I only watch the games I know they're going to win, too. <laughs> Oh, they're playing Boston. And, oh, oh, Boston at 79. This will be great. They'll get down by two and they'll score. They'll win overtime. Ha uh-huh. You know. I'll watch the odd tie. I won't watch when they lose. It's no fun. Anyway. So this work is really in its infancy, okay? You've got to understand that. So this is early days on some of this stuff. Um, a lot of this has come out of a, a, a sort of relatively new field called Darwinian medicine. Uh, Darwinian medicine is the idea of using evolutionary psychology, uh, sorry, evolutionary theory to understand sickness and health. Kind of like yesterday, or last time we were talking about the sort of Darwinian approach to diet and lifestyle. It's also had a big influence there, right? So we were talking about health psychology and all that stuff the other day. Big influence of Darwinian medicine. Big influence of Darwinian medicine here is looking at per- perhaps causes and maybe getting an idea about treatments, though I'm not sure how much this is going to tell us about treatment. All right, so that's by way of introduction. Um, okay, in general, I should say disorders, not diorders. I can't spiel very well. <laughs> See, I misspelled that and pronounced it wrong as well when I said spell. Uh, <laughs> that's comedy. Um, Okay, some disorders actually may be defensive. So I'm going to talk about these as general points about all disorders, then we'll talk about a couple in specific. Um, so some disorders actually may be defenses. Um, when you think about depression, we'll talk more about this uh, later on today, but depression might be a pretty good defense. If something really bad has happened to you, withdrawing is probably a pretty good approach. Because either the environment you're in right now, or something you did caused something bad to happen. Either way, probably getting away from everybody for a while is a good idea. 
Okay? So it may just be a defense. Right? Okay. Some of these could be fit, uh, side effects of fitness enhancing genes. So we have what's going to be fitness enhancing about, again, let's go with the depression angle. It's fitness enhancing if I did something I shouldn't have done that, that had a bad outcome, I should withdraw for a while from society. That's actually probably a good idea because, I mean, I screwed up. I'm probably, maybe, maybe I'm in a little bit of danger or maybe I put my family in danger, my genes in danger. So maybe I should withdraw for a while. That's a pretty good, for a while, a day, two, two days a week. Should I withdraw for six, six, six months? Probably not. So it could just be a side effect that way. Okay? Uh, there could also be frequency-dependent selection. We're going to talk about uh, the idea that uh, being a sociopath is actually a reproductive strategy. It's not a nice one, but it's a reproductive <laughs> strategy. And it only really works if there are very few sociopaths and everyone trusts people. It works if, like, if everybody's trusting, right? Generally, we trust people. But I'm the one acting like, you know, Dexter. <laughs> Except instead of killing people, I'm mating with them. In other words, I'm a rapist, okay? I'm not saying it's nice or right. Again, naturalistic fallacy. You know, today in, in, in evolutionary psychology, Broadback said that rape was good. No, not what I said. I said that it might be an like it might be a reproductive strategy. It's not a nice one, and it's probably not very effective, right? But if it's rare, if everybody's a sociopath, then it's not going to be very effective. Who's going to actually the ones that are not sociopaths are going to be? It's like remember I talked about Hawks and Dobbs, the idea of being pleasant or being mean to each other, frequency dependent selection. So this, some of these things may just be, if they're rare, they actually have a value. It could be absence or malfunctioning module. Uh, we talk, we th a lot of times think about autism this way. It's that it's either, um, we can think of the mind reading module. When I say mind reading, I don't mean actual. <laughs> what I mean is your ability to understand how other people think. Theory of mind, right? You know, theory of mind, you want to talk about that in developmental if you've taken that. Right, the idea of understanding how others think. So little kids, for example, done a very good theory of mind below about three years old. That's just, this is why little kids will hide behind curtains and leave their feet there and think that no one can see them. Right? Because they have no clue about how it's, oh, they can't lie. Little kids can't lie. They, it's, it's actually kind of sad when kids start to be able to lie. They can't do it very well. But little kids can't lie. They look at you like you say, did you, my sister once ate a whole box of donuts when she was two. And they were covered in like powdered sugar. You know the really shitty donuts you get like at the store? Yeah. Not at a donut place, but you know, and they're covered little tiny sheen of them. It's just covered in the picture we have actually of her. Covered in this powdered sugar. Um, and my, I remember my mom, I specifically remember my mom saying, Stephanie, did you eat those donuts? And she looked up and she said, no. <laughs> and you know, because that's, you can't lie. I asked my nephew Maxim once, I asked him French, but I asked him, he was about three, and he had taken all these pots and pans out. Even then, Maxim was interested in cooking. Still is today. We should sharpen his knives. But he, took, he had all these pots and pans out at my mother-in-law's place. We had, had gone out. We were off in another part of the, her apartment. We come back. He's got all the pots and pans out. 
And I looked at him and I said, Maxim, did you take those pots and pans out? He goes, no. And then I said, well, they're all around you. You must have done it. And he looked at me like I was magic. How did you get my stamp? How did you figure it out? Because kids can't understand how other people think. They don't have a very good theory of mind. You might want to call it a mind-reading module. Uh, it may be the case that in people with autism, there's an absence or a malfunctioning of that module. That's a thought. Uh, there's something to be said to that thing. There's also a big difference between now and the EEA, a real big dis really big disconnect. With some things, there isn't much of a disconnect, right? Um, and with some things, there's a very big disconnect. One of the biggest is socially, we don't live the same way we did then. As far as, like, we used to live in family groups, probably about th between 30 and 50 max. We were all related, more or less. There's maybe some cousins in there, but that's as far as it went. There were no people in that group that you hung out with that you weren't somehow related to. And now we don't live like that. We don't live like that anymore. Right? If you come together in a classroom, it's unlikely you're related to somebody, unless he's your father, I guess. So, I mean, it's that kind of thing, right, where... Our society today, we used to live in these sort of, I don't know what to call them, tribes or groups or whatever to call them, together, and now we don't live like that anymore. And that may be something to do with depression, may have something to do with that. Or that may have something to do with depression. So these are sort of general explanations. And of course, there's also the extremes of polygenetic traits. Most of the interesting psychological traits we have are polygenetic. There's a lot of genes contributing to one trait, like intelligence, for example. But if we think about something like schizophrenia, Maybe it's, well, a little bit of kind of thinking outside the box. I love that expression, by the way. That's one of my favorites. Um, it's almost as good as using air quotes. So thinking outside the box, creativity, all that stuff, that's good. Too much of that might lead to, the, to, to schizophrenia. That's a thought. So again, that's an extreme apologetic trait. So these are just some general approaches that may be, um, sort of general ideas that may explain some of these. Uh, disorders that we'll talk about today. All right. Questions about these kind of general explanations? Big caveat here is watch out for just so stories. A lot of this stuff sounds really good. And my question always is how are we going to do research on this without a time machine? Without a time machine. Once my time machine is complete, we will be, we'll be fine. So let's have a post traumatic stress disorder. Post-traumatic stress disorders involves flashbacks. Uh, this is usually after a very, uh, you know, not just flashback, like reliving the experience, right? This involves um, usually a lot, a little bit of social withdrawal, things like that. So, look, we've been around for at least humans for a couple hundred thousand years, as we saw him walking with cavemen, something human-ish for about half a million years, maybe a million years, right? So we've dealt with a lot of crap over time. And especially back in the EEA, we dealt with really intense experiences a lot. This is the, the, the reason here. We dealt, dealt with a lot of really intense experiences, things like um, being hunted, 
You know, that's, that doesn't happen to us anymore. Right? And now I will hunt the most dangerous animal of all. Man. Um, every TV show eventually has that episode. It's just one of those things. No, it's true. Star Trek had one. Uh, Gilligan's Island. So not every show, like two. Um, so that's pretty intense. And that used to happen to us, you know? Other animals tried to eat us. They do that now, we shoot them. It's no big deal. Or we just call in an airstrike. I mean, you know, but it used to be that happened to us. So that's, that'd be something that would happen pretty common enough, I would think. And if it would completely shut you down, you would think that your genes wouldn't get passed on and that shouldn't be present today. So this is almost one of those disconnect things. We would expect PTSD to be more common in man-made situations. So this is stuff involving perhaps technology, stuff like that. And it is more common in, if you look at when people have traumatic events, and I'm not saying it doesn't happen, and things that used to happen before. There used to be rape. There's always been rape, and people that are rape victims, uh, or you want to go with rape survivors, if you want to go with positive language, um, certainly there are people that have those things that have PTSD. There is no argument there, and I'm not going to argue that. Because that would be silly. But if we take a look at where does PTSD normally show up, it normally shows up in, 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 in military veterans, in war veterans. This is, this is the big, this is where it was originally identified, where it's originally called, well, let's see, they used to call it lack of moral fiber, which is a way of calling you a coward. That was before World War I. Then in World War I, they called it shell shock, which is a good name. Lack of moral fiber, that's so weird. Lack of moral fiber is what a coward is, isn't it? It's on over discharge for him. First 40 lashes. Yes, that'd be teaching. But then World War I, they call it they call it shell shock, which is a good name because it both started with a sh sound, and it sounded good, it was good marketing. Uh, then World War II, they called it battle fatigue. It's kind of like, but it almost sounded like, you know, I'm tired of fighting a war, you know? And then Pat slapped the guy in the face. You guys don't know about that? World War II, anyway. General Patton slapped a guy that said he had battle fatigue. No, we'll have no cowards in my army, and he hit him. Patton was a bit of a tough guy. Uh, and then after Vietnam, they started calling it PTSD, post-traumatic stress disorder. Guys come home today, uh, and of course today they come home from, say, uh, the Canadian soldiers from Afghanistan, and some of them come home with PTSD. I heard a thing on the radio yesterday about police officers getting PTSD. Again, because they're, they're dealing sometimes with such very intense situations. So it's much more common in a man-made thing. You might say, Dave, there's always been war. Right? And it's true. It's true. Greeks, Romans, Trojans. Trojans had that big horse, which is kind of a cool approach. No one knows if that's true, but it's a pretty cool story. Roman soldiers were pretty badass to say that. But Roman soldiers, as awesome as Roman soldiers were, and as bloody as warfare was, uh, if you ever seen the, the television series Rome, uh, Gladiator does a decent job of this at the beginning too, showing what Roman soldiers fighting was like. Uh, also, this to show the, the movie uh, The 13th that does a pretty good job. It was organized and all that stuff, and they had, you know, ranks and all this. 
And it was horrible. You know, you were killing guys with swords and, and, and such. It's not pleasant. But the scale of warfare was so, and weaponry is so different than we have today. It's the scale of it, right? You could not take out a sword and kill 30 guys at once. You can do that now with a gun. Right? You can't call in an airstrike and kill 100 guys, and then you have to go check if you killed them and see their charred bodies. Right? That didn't happen back then. So the, it's the scale of it and the kind of weapon we have today is so, it's orders of magnitude different than warfare was back in, in say, Roman times. Right? So it may be that, that, that that's one of the things that makes it so different that we aren't built for that. We haven't evolved to deal with that kind of scale of destruction. To me, the amazing thing, actually, is that soldiers come home from wars and don't have it. It's a small percentage that come back and have PTSD. It's, it's, a, it's something we should be very concerned about. We should give these guys great treatment. They were fighting for their country and all. No matter what you think of any war they're in, they're... But it's amazing that more guys don't come back completely, completely, completely messed up. Right? It's, it's incredible to me. I, I can't fathom how that's possible. To sit up there and watch your friends die and kill people, and you don't come back completely crazy. Yeah. Or you just don't run away. We'll talk about that later in the course, about why that works, the not running away. That's actually pretty neat, grabbing onto evolution. That's a guess about PTSD. I don't know that it explains a whole lot. Okay, but it's a guess. Questions about that before we talk about depression? It would be sad. Okay. Depression, you know depression isn't just feeling down. Um, it's the length of time um, and the severity. In fact, if you don't feel upset when you lose a loved one, when someone dies in your family, there's something wrong with you, probably. Right? That's that. If you feel upset six months later and you still don't feel like getting in a bed and moving and eating and having a shower, that's a problem. That's the problem. Is it six? It's six months, is it not? Or six weeks? I've taken abnormal since 1987. Back we called it abnormal psychology, not psychopathology. It's six weeks. Yeah. It's, it's, it's it's weeks? Okay, so it's weeks. And the kids, it's two weeks. Okay. Because kids are, kids are stupid. <laughs> <laughs> so six weeks, that makes a lot more sense. Six weeks, sure. You know, I can remember when my dad died, I was pretty upset. Um, six weeks later, I'm still upset by it. It still pisses me off. At the unjustness of the universe. And it's considered postpartum depression if you yeah. had it past four weeks. Okay. I mean, or postpartum not depression stress disorder. Right. But I mean, the thing is here, after six weeks, it wasn't like I was still lying in bed not wanting to move. I, you know, a couple weeks, like, yeah, well, life goes on. And that's what most people do. And it's weird if you don't have those feelings. I remember talking to my mom about this after my dad died, and she's like, you know, she said, I felt sort of paralyzed. I said, yeah, that's what you're supposed to feel. It's okay. You know, you've known the guy for 49 years. See, that was a lot of fun. Or whatever the hell it was. Something like that. But you had to move on. And most people do. So it's the length of time and the severity of it, right? 
I'm still sad about my father. I think about my dad every day. But it doesn't, it's not debilitating. It's especially, especially think of him during anything political and hockey. So it's feelings of worthlessness, a lack of motivation, that kind of thing. You know that, right? So, the incredible extent of my knowledge of clinical psychology. There's a book called the DSM, you look it up, and then you say you've got depression. I'm not talking like that, I don't know who that guy is. So, you guys know what depression is. Okay, is, it, is depression adaptive? That's a cool question. So this is um, Rudolf, is it Rudolf? Randolph. I think it's Rudolf Ness. Um, this is his idea. He, he's one of the, the founders of the Darwinian medicine movement. Um, he does what he calls evolutionary psychiatry. Uh, but he's a prof, uh, I think University of Michigan. He's not only an evolutionary psychologist, but he's also a professor of psychiatry. So like, he knows what he's talking about. Um, what depression is kind of doing, as far as Nessa, is, Nessa or Ness, I'm just going to say Ness, as far as he's concerned, is... It's telling us the behaviors we are doing now, whatever the approach we are taking to, whatever the hell it is, is going the wrong way. It's not the right approach. It's not solving the problem, whatever that problem is. It's telling us you're not solving the problem. Right? Well, if stuff isn't working, you shouldn't... Ex this, is, this is where you see it, like the adaptive. If stuff isn't working, you shouldn't expend resources on a, a losing proposition. This is like continuing to be a Leafs fan. At some point, you have to give up. Or back in my day, back to continuing to be an Expos fan. Damn, Washington stole my baseball team. Then they get good, by the way. They were fine in 94, then they had a strike. Best team in baseball. Still better. So don't expend resources and energy and stuff like this on a pro on stuff that doesn't work. That stuff might be behavior. That stuff might be a person, uh, a relationship, whatever. Okay? So in other words, it's saying, stop it. You're wasting your time. Okay? So I think you can probably see the adaptiveness in this. Right? That seems like that seems like it would be an adaptive approach. Now, but the thing is, you have to bounce back. You can't then. And now I will be here forever. No, I can't find my bicycle that was stolen when I was six, and that's it. I've been depressed ever since. Right? That's not that's not what you have to do. You have to bounce back after this. So there has to be a reasonable amount of time. So what Nessa is saying here is that it's really just what I was saying before, which is for a couple of weeks, it's sensible to behave like this. Totally and completely and utterly sensible to withdraw after something very bad has happened to you. You should withdraw. It makes sense. Biologically. But you have to bounce back. Right? Okay. Questions about that? Does that make sense? Any comments on that? 
we'll continue talking about this, but I'm just curious. What do you think of this so far, this idea of depression? It's sensible to me, but... Yeah, I, I, I like it. Okay. So, the whole notion here is that we have what's called the depression threshold. This is that when you lose, you feel bad, and you have a... When I say lose, in any, if you think of life as a game... Right, a game theory kind of idea where wherever you start losing fitness, where you don't, and that can be directly measured by like I don't know, uh, you don't get a mating partner or whatever, or you don't get all the food you wanted. It could be all kinds of things. That's when you lose the game, and when you lose, you feel bad. And then there's a level of how much I've lost, and beyond that, I withdraw. I get quote depressed. So that's when you slow down when you lose enough. And everybody's depression threshold might be different. Right? And again, I, I think we see this in general. In, in people in general, I think that some people are affected by stuff more than others, when it's the same thing. Uh, I think, when I think about things personally, um, I think it was a little easier for me to go on about stuff when my dad died than it was for my sister and my brother. though, and again, those were sensible things. We should have been down after our death But maybe some people have too low depression threshold. So the notion here is that some people, and again, this would just be something, some sort of, it's just a trait. So some people's depression threshold perhaps is too low. And if it's too low, the smallest thing sets them off. One, if you've got it too low, you could also have one that's too high. Nobody's really looked at that. Um, in fact, no one's really looked at the pressure threshold a whole lot. It all sounds nice, but no one's really done a lot of work on this yet. It's coming. But at this point, it's all theoretical. So, the question is, is this a good explanation? Well, one thing that goes against the idea a little bit is that depressed people actually are, and I've talked about this before, depressed people have a little bit more of an accurate reading on the universe, on the world, than non-depressed people. If we ask depressed people what your likelihood of, of, of doing something, of, of, of succeeding at something is, something difficult, they're much more likely to say very small, where people that are, most of us, because I, I, considering you're all here, you're probably not depressed, and if you are, you're on your medication today, so you don't feel depressed. So, chances are you're doing okay, and you're going to overestimate your chance, you're going to, you lie to yourself, right? You self-deceive, we do it all the time. And that's actually pretty adaptive. So, it's interesting that, well, depressed people are probably more accurate than non-depressed people, at assessing a situation, it's also probably adaptive to deceive yourself. Um, some of this might have to do with seasonal affective disorder. This is the idea that, look, we evolved in Africa, right? We evolved in Africa at a pretty tropical, pretty much light 12 hours a day, dark 12 hours a day. You know, lots of light, and then we move to stupid places like, you know, Sault Ste. Marie. 
Paris. Even Paris is stupid. Nobody should be living that far north. Ridiculous. It's cold. Get the long nights in the winter. It's stupid. We should all be, nobody should be living like anywhere north of like North Carolina or Spain. We should be anywhere, and no farther south than maybe, you know, from the equator, I don't know, like, Rio. <laughs> That's it. And such. It's ridiculous. So when we started to migrate out of Africa, for the longest time we lived in Africa, and everything's great, except that then there's that drought we had to leave. And we're not used to these really short days, right? So maybe that some depression, and of course this is true, that the further north you go, the more depression you see, or the further south from the equator. Right? And people far up north, um, it's, it's especially people that haven't lived there their whole lives, do have a lot of problems with it. Right? Why is that? Well, that's basically, your, your, your body clock is shutting you down. Right? Because you're supposed to wake in the day, right, and sleep at night. But when it's always night, you're asleep more, you're, you're down more, basically. So that's what's going on. That's the notion of sad, seasonal affective disorder. And we see it because we know that there are people that get depressed every winter. Yeah. And then they're fine in the summer. And what you do is you give them a full spectrum light to shine at them. And then they're, they, that is actually a pretty cheap uh, and effective uh, therapy for them. For people with what's that? With seasonal affective disorder. Very clever nickname, by the way, or acronym. Ooh, seasonal. We're gonna call it sad. You know they called it sad first, then they went, we're gonna call it seasonal and depressed, and that won't work. Uh, seasonal affective disorder. Yes, sir. Do you think of the idea where some people say, like, give some vitamin D supplements and it might help perk up your mood during the winter? I don't know. There was this one lady I saw that was kind of yeah. out there at a store, and I was with my yeah. daughter, and she started going up to me. Because some other kid was crying, and she's like, it's vitamin D deficiency. That's what's going on. Yeah. They need more vitamin D. And this yeah, lady is completely out of whack because all of a sudden, I was just trying to avoid You know, you can, get, you can get all your vitamin D being in the sun for 15 minutes a day. <laughs> That's all you need is 15 freaking minutes a day. You know what taking vitamin supplements does to you? It makes your urine really full of vitamins. Because um, the amount of vitamins, unless you really are deficient, right? There are cases, look, if you're on a ship, and it's 1512, and you're from Britain, you're probably going to get some scurvy. So you, you eat some vitamin C, so you eat some limes, they end up calling you limeys, and that's why we call British people limeys. So you've also learned the etymology of the racial epithet limey. <laughs> um, but yeah, typically, we don't have these kind of vitamin deficiencies. You can literally get all the vitamin D you need between about 15 minutes, depending on the time of year, 15 minutes to 45 minutes a day in the sun. Yeah, and that's in fact I've heard uh, Ness talk about this this stuff uh, literally. Oh, oh, what did I hear that on uh, Quirks and Quarks, the CBC radio program? And he was saying, you know, vitamin B is yeah, sure, of course, important, but you can you don't need to take pills. You just go outside. The only time you really need to is say if you're breastfeeding and you have a child, you're supposed to give them vitamin D supplements because they're not getting enough from your milk and they're not being out in the sunlight a lot. And uh, yeah, see, if that was the case, then why is it that there already isn't vitamin D? I I, I just 
I'm not saying that everything natural is good, because I won't say that, but it'd be pretty amazing to me if pretty much everything a baby needed wasn't in mother's milk. They recommend it more oh, yeah. to people up here oh, yeah. in the north. Oh, and I think it may, be, may, may make sense in that case, because you're not outside too much, especially when you just had a kid. Maybe just sitting inside and waiting for them to cry again. They seem to find, I guess, that infants who are being breastfed were slightly deficient. Up yeah, and especially probably up so further north again, or down or in the southern hemisphere, further south. Yeah, that makes some sense. Yeah. And they also look at like B twelve deficiencies in people that are depressed, and that would be another reason, like in the winter, you get less B twelve stuff in the sun. Okay, I, I, not, I don't know about B twelve, so I'll, I'll yeah. take your word. I'll take your word. I mean, I, I think that the thing that we have to be really wary about with these vitamin things. Now, part of it is that we don't live if we don't all live in Africa. Um, but it's also partly, you've got to remember that for the most part, you can get anything you need out of food most every day. But there will be times there's going to be deficiencies, no doubt about that. And of course, we could also know more, like we know more about things like, you know, women in the pregnancy should have folic acid. So suddenly pregnant women are, are eating broccoli a lot, right? Because it's got folic acid in it, right? Um, or taking folic acid supplements. Taking a whole bunch of vitamin C when you have a cold isn't good. That doesn't do a damn thing. It makes your pee really, 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 really <laughs> full of vitamin C. My dad says that a lot. I just yeah. <laughs> go ahead, take it. It's not going to hurt you. So I mean, if people want to believe that, and especially I always say to people, if you want to do that, just eat some oranges. They're much more delicious than eating vitamin C tablets that have that fake orange flavor, right? But they don't do anything, right? Um, this also. The female-male differences in depression, when females make mistakes behaviorally, babies die. Right? Again, I'm not saying now, I'm saying the EEA. If a female makes a mistake, if a woman makes a mistake, it's more likely that a kid dies than it is with a, with a the consequences are bigger. Women have bigger responsibilities when it comes like the kids, right? Because let's say you're pregnant, that's going to be responsibility. Or you're, you're nursing a kid. And you've got to remember that women used to breastfeed kids till they were four and five back in the EEA. We know that, we're pretty sure that uh, from looking at bone density, but we also know that from looking at um, hunter-gatherer societies today where kids breastfeed till they're four or five. I think once the kid can talk, he shouldn't breastfeed. That's my own thing, because then the kid's going to say, can I breastfeed? Wouldn't the mother be creeped out? That's all I'm saying. <laughs> you know, it's just me. And I'm not even a mom. And look, that's, that's still, I would be like, no, that's weird. Kids talking. Shouldn't do that anymore. But people do it. Yes? How does that play in with the fact that um, when women are breastfeeding, when they are experiencing stress, they're less likely to be producing enough milk for the infant? Well, if it's, if it's bad enough, well, there's two ways. Uh, first of all, that may just be a side effect, and it wouldn't necessarily be adaptive, right? Yeah. I mean, it, it, because you well, can't... Of course it's not. <laughs> no, no. I can come up with a reason where it may be adaptive if it's really stressful, but maybe you want to let the kid go. You know what I'm saying? But you have to pretty, that seems a bit much. It seems to me that it just isn't adaptive, but frankly, you can't, your body can't work properly when you have to worry about your own self getting away from the same tooth tiger. Yeah. No, I mean, uh, so, I mean, everything isn't going to have an adaptive value. And that might, the adaptive value there might be actually keeping you alive. Yeah. Right? Because at, 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 at the root of it, you have to be the selfish one. Right? So, the, the evolutionary explanations kind of work there as well. 
Um, why is depression so common? Uh, because it's, it's, oh, sorry, Matt, yeah. I just have a question about like, the male-female differences. Are yes. you saying that women get more depressed? They do. Okay. Yeah. There are more, of, of unipolar depression, it's a big ratio, too. It's four or five to one, at least, I think. Women to men. Um, multipolar, bipolar, like, uh, you know, bipolar affective disorder, that, there's no sex difference there. But uh, the sex difference is there in plain old uh, major depressive disorder. Yeah. yeah, and it's pretty cross-cultural too, from what I understand. Yeah. Now, why is depression so common? Well, there's the big EEA versus today disconnect I talked about. In other words, and we can look at the number of relatives you have close by. And the interesting thing is here, if you actually do a correlation between the number of relatives people have, like how far away they are, and the number of depressed people in the family, nice uh, negative correlation. So. The Sorry, positive correlation. The further away your relatives are, the more likely you are to be depressed. Hmm. Now, we don't know what direction that goes in. Maybe you ran away from home and got as far away as you could from those bastards because they depress you. So, you know, it does go a bit both ways, doesn't it? Might go a bit both ways. And it probably does go a bit both ways. Um, the world's a lot different than it used to be. We have jobs now. Right. We, we get valued based on how we perform at some task that we do, and that's the task that society values in this world, right? So, like, we all have different occupations in life, whatever. Didn't used to be that way. If this was in the EEA, by now, Wait for we, well, we all be up because it was dark. It was light. It's light out, so we all get up. The women would be doing things with the with the babies, and the and they'd have the, the the gathering. The guys would probably sit around for a while and be lazy, and then because they're guys, and then eventually we'd all go hunting, and we kill something, and we come back, and we'd sit around and we eat. Now, if something else had to happen, suddenly we all become something, you know. If we all decide, if there's uh, something threatening us, we all become soldiers, basically. I mean, there was no actual division. There was division of labor between the sexes and between the age groups. But as you aged, you went from a, to a different job, right? So maybe you weren't going on the hunt anymore if you were older, or you weren't going to gather if you're older. Perhaps you're looking after the kids a lot more. So, but no one had a job. Like you, it's a weird concept, the idea of an occupation. When you think about it, right? No other animals have jobs. Well, some chimps do, I believe. They go off to work, smoke cigars, wear hats. But it's pretty rare. <laughs> so that's way different. We have this weird kind of pressure on us every day to do something. And we didn't used to have that. Also, our power isn't visible anymore. Power used to be pretty visible. Right? We all know who the number one guy was. He was the guy with the alligator tooth in his mouth. <laughs> no, he was, it was pretty obvious he was. He was probably the strongest. He was probably the biggest. And he was also probably the smartest. It was pretty clear who ran the show. And it was the same with the, the, the sort of female that had the role of being the number one, usually in sort of a harem of females. It's not visible today. It's hard to know. You can't spot who has power. Right?
If you put me beside the president of the university, I'm bigger than him. I'm bigger than Rick Myers. He has a more powerful job than I do. And he wears suits. He knows how to tie a tie. God, I don't. That's why I mentioned it. It's not like I make a thing for him, but I can't tie a tie. But you can't really tell who has the power. You used to be and say, well, big blonde guy does. He's big and strong like a bull. Because they used to all talk with Slavic accents, apparently. Um, but now, you can't tell. The world's confusing to our Stone Age minds. And who do we, we used to compare ourselves. Who do we compare ourselves to? We compare ourselves to, I wish I could be like Lothar of the hill people over here, because he's getting some. You know, that was it. He's getting mating opportunities, and he gets to eat the best part of uh, that deer that guy just killed. Because he's the leader of, our, of the tribe. And it was attainable. Now what do we do? You do things like, and believe me, this starts to happen when you're in your 40s. You go, my God, Barack Obama got elected when he was 47, and I'm 47. I suck. I'm not the leader of any country, much less the free world. I'm horrible. Then you realize, you're, no, you're just an idiot. Stop comparing yourself to somebody like that. Right? And you'll start noticing this soon, especially if you like sports. It starts to be that your heroes are younger than you. Right? Oh, he's such a great player. He's only, oh my God, he was born in the 1990s. <laughs> How is that? Po no one was born in the 90s. The guy looks like he'd be the number one draft pick next year in the NHL. He was born in 1999. Oh, yeah. And you look at him. He's really good. He's two years older than my kid. That's weird, you know? So you start to compare yourself that way, and then again, it's a huge disconnect. Because we didn't know the superstar. Were there superstar huntsmen? Yeah, probably huntsmen. I love that word. I'm sure there were. So maybe depression is really, this is a really cool idea. Maybe depression is negotiation. This is get help from Ken. Um... In the EA, it was to get help from kids. Like, oh, I'm not going to take, I, I, I can't help myself. In other words, you help me and I'll just sit here and relax. The thing is, you used to get help from your kid, from your family. You can't do that anymore because they're not around. This actually kind of explains postpartum depression, which would be like, someone help me with this kid. So, in fact, maybe a little bit of withdrawal from a kid is called, was, could have been adaptive because a little bit of withdrawal leads your relatives to say, oh, that, that thing shares part of genes with me, too. I better help, help, help with that kid. Of course, now there aren't uncles and aunts and cousins and all that stuff all hanging around like there used to be. That's a pretty new idea. Um, and who knows, I mean, I, I don't know what it, if, if, it's, it's got some intuitive appeal, but I'm not sure what I think of it, because nobody's really gone into it big time yet. So, it's kind of sad, because if this, you know, if you use this back in the day, it helped give communal support, yes. whereas along the line somewhere, it started being 
stigmatized and you're crazy, let's lock you up. Yeah. <laughs> All of a sudden you got isolated yeah. and treated so inhumane. Well, see, it, it made a lot of sense up until we started not all living in family groups. Like, think about it. We used to live in a, in a group of 30 to 50 people, and they were all your relatives. Probably the most distant was your, was maybe a second cousin. Parenting was communal, everybody else. Well, it wasn't necessarily communal, but people would take part because, you know, they, they, they know that's my niece, my nephew, my half-brother. So, it, I mean, mostly it's the moms doing uh, for their own kids, but chances are that's also your aunt over there. So there is going to be some help. Right? So parenting wasn't necessarily communal, and you don't even see that today with like hunter gatherer tribes that are really pretty much untouched by Western civilization. Everybody knows who their kids are, and they do take, take care of their kids more than other kids, but you still do it with other kids because they probably do have some commonality with you. So, yeah, it made a great deal of sense back then. It all depends on the type of society, too, because in some societies, you know, it's the uncle that raises the kid. Or yeah, I mean, there is, all different. there is that where the uncle will see, and it's usually a maternal uncle. Yeah, exactly. Not a paternal uncle. Father doesn't even know it's his. Yep. Yeah. So, yeah, it's cool stuff. Uh, depression is one of my students a few years ago, uh, Jocelyn Court, she decided she wanted to, she took a class like this when it was a special topic, so she wanted to do her honors thesis on this. So, what we did, or what her idea was, was we would write little stories about different people and their reactions to a death in their family. And then we would see. If someone being depressed about it would be attractive, because that would be able to enhance their fitness. So they either were told just a story about a person. So there's a death in their family. That's the same story for everybody. Then there's one group that's told how the person reacts, uh, and they react not at all. They just didn't go on. There's a per there's one group that's not told anything about the reaction. Just told about the person, and there's finally one group that's told that the person withdraws for a few weeks and feels really sad, and then they either asked how attractive they find the people. And it turned out that they found the people that got depressed the most attractive. So very, very clever. It was Jocelyn's idea, got even credit. Really neat little experiment. Because I remember she came to me and said, for her honors thesis, she wanted to find out the adaptive value of depression. I said, well, okay, I think that's more like a PhD thesis. But she did find something pretty neat, so it was quite clever. All right. So continuing on our trip down sadness lane, uh, suicide, how can killing yourself be good for your genes? Well, it's never group selection. You can't say, well, it's good for the group. Um, group selection doesn't work. I've talked about this before with things like food storing and birds, like how, you know, we, we don't, excuse me, we don't do things that are good for the group. Because frankly, being selfish is easy, is going to be more effective than being good for the group. Nature is not a socialist paradise. Right? So, what about kin selection? Kin selection says that I'm not doing stuff for the group, I'm doing stuff for my family. My family share genes with me. Oh, well, that's different. This was uh, Hamilton came up with the idea of kin selection. This is the idea that you will do something if you are more likely, if the costs are less than the benefits to you and to relatives, but you take the relative benefit and multiply it times the number, their, their relationship to you. So 0.5 if for a child or for a brother or sister or for a parent, 0.25 for an uncle or aunt or a niece or nephew, uh, and so on. 
And in fact, that's what got people were confused about sometimes. People that looked like organizations were doing things for the benefit of the group, and it turned out they were just doing stuff for the benefit of their genes, in essence. Right? Hamilton, when once asked, would you run into a building uh, burning, oh, sorry, would you give your life for your child? And he said, no, but for two of them. Huh. It's 0.5 and 0.5 is 1, so it's 1 a.m. Right? Uh, in an exam in graduate school, we were asked, um, your house is on fire, inside is your spouse, your two children, an uncle, an aunt, your mother, and your dog. In what order do you save them? First is the children, and you save the older child first because you've already invested in that child and they're close to reproductive age, then the younger child, then your mother, then your father, uh, then you go with uncles and aunts, um, then cousins, finally spouse. You can get another one for us. Then, that's no. true. I was going to say yeah. spell first because that's the person you're reproducing with an Androsa. No, you get a new one. Ooh, you so get a new one. And then it all ends finally with dog because it's more, more distantly related to you than any other human. Any some human. people grow up dog. Yeah. Oh, some people probably, probably do, yes. Um, but yeah, that was our, that was our, and yeah, it was sort of an extension of the thing Hamilton was asked. Um, so the interesting thing is about suicide, this is all I'm going to say about suicide, is that Suicide notes tend to reflect, you look like a content analysis of suicide notes, they seem to reflect that people are thinking of themselves as burdens. And they do themselves in. It's a common theme in suicide notes, let's say that. So it's perhaps, um, yeah, that is kids' logic. Maddie? Do other animals, like, do we know that other animals purposely kill themselves? Uh, we don't, not really, no. Because I mean, that'd be kind of hard to. Yeah, because you kind of feel attention at it. Um, it doesn't seem like I've heard anything like that. I know of stories that aren't true. Yeah. I can say that, like lemmings. Yeah. Another thing where lemmings go off a cliff to save their species, that comes from a Disney movie. Yeah. Disney used to make a lot of uh, wildlife documentaries, and in that one there's always been a story about lemmings doing this, and they, this was done in the 1950s. They literally threw lemmings off camera off a cliff and filmed it. <laughs> Yeah. I read something about lizards where if they're depressed, like they're just not getting the stimulation they want in a captive environment, they'll stop eating until they die. I don't know the truth to this. It was on the internet. and Well, then it must be true. <laughs> so I was like... See, now there's an interesting mechanism, though, because if they're not getting stimulation, in other words, they're not in an ideal environment, they're, they're being depressed, just like we were talking about. And in but the mechanism would be... Think about it. And the mechanism gets turned on to the point where it just doesn't get turned off. Does like things don't get better? But maybe that makes that's kind of like our depression. At the time, mechanism. I had a lizard that was sick and stopped eating yeah. and died. So I wanted. I was just like, oh my god, I made it depressed. Yeah. I was it's your fault. It. it really was your fault, and um, you should feel pretty bad about that. Let one of God's creatures die under your care. <laughs> <laughs> I also ended up a couple other comments there that I just said. Um, so. Okay, now what about anxiety disorders? That was depression, I mean, suicide, whatever. Anxiety disorders, phobias are a great example here. Uh, we've talked about this before. Phobias do seem to be learned, um, but nobody's afraid of houses or cars. People are afraid of things that they should be afraid of, sensible things, they're afraid of sharks and snakes. Even though there's no sharks or snakes around, you know? We talked about that when I drew my excellent whale one day. Remember the whale drawing? I do. Yeah. 
But it is interesting that no one is afraid of mothers. You might be afraid of your own mother, but no one's afraid of mothers. <laughs> right? No one's afraid of houses or food. Oh, not shelter and food. Right? Or no one's afraid of man-made things. Like, no one's afraid of airplanes. People afraid of being in airplanes? No one's afraid that people don't see airplanes overhead and go... Right? Okay. That's the scared reaction. That's what I was doing there. Uh, people are afraid of flying, not airplanes overhead, right? And the interesting thing is, this is even if they've been through air raids. This is people that survived the bombing of, of Germany, people that survived the German the bombing of London, people that survived the Allied uh, bombing of, of Japan, which was worse than the one in Germany. It was. When, you're, when your towns are made out of paper and, and wood, they burn. It was really, really nasty. But people in Japan that went through that aren't afraid of airplanes. And if anybody should be, it'd be them. Right? Because it's man-made stuff. Okay, what about sociopaths? Mm -hmm. Uncomfortable stuff. And this is actually perhaps a reproductive strategy I mentioned at the beginning. It's going to be successful if it's rare. Because if it's common, everyone can detect sociopaths, and then it won't be, it won't work as a reproductive strategy anymore. So this is the idea of they have no shame or guilt, they'll manipulate and they'll force sex on somebody. What they're doing is they're playing on reciprocal altruism. Reciprocal altruism is the idea that you scratch my back, I scratch yours. So we may not be relatives, but I'm, as a human, smart enough to remember who you are and remember what you did for me. So I will pay you back in the future. And we know that other animals do this. We know that chimps, when with chimps, typically one male gets all the manes. So we know that young uh, males what they'll do is they'll get together in a group and one will go distract the alpha male and the other ones will go mate with the females. And then the next time the guy who did the distracting, he gets to do, do some of the loving and then somebody else does the distracting. <clears throat> right? So it's interesting that like there we even, the reciprocal altruism, because it does happen in other species. Um, so by the way, reciprocal altruism isn't altruism really because you always in the end get something out of it. Right? Uh, what, what these folks are doing, these sociopaths, is they are playing on our, on our simple altruism. We, we tend to be nice to each other, humans. We really do. Right? So they're playing on that. Uh, there's a notion that it, it gives... This is a very Freudian notion, that's why I don't like it, and I've got in quotes. But the idea that being a sociopath kind of gives them an outlet for their lack of feeling about other fellow humans. So they only can only get this, this these sort of feelings of, that most of us get for helping people. Feels good. They can only get this by doing horrible things. I don't really like that explanation very much. But it's because it sounds vaguely Freudian to me. That's why I don't like it. So I got to limit my bias there. But, I mean, again, this is early days, this stuff. I will say that uh, an honor student of mine back in Newfoundland did a, a, an archival kind of research study where she looked at uh, incidents of rape and 
the severity of prostitution laws in the 50 states of the United States have done a nice correlation between saying that the less severe the prostitution laws were, the less rape there was. So maybe the outlet theory has some, like, some, something to it. You know? By the way, again, that was done by a woman named Joanne Morgan. It was not done by me. You're just a sexist and you're trying to make people be prostitutes. No, I'm not. And we're saying to her, you know, this is really a great idea and a guy can't do this in the current climate because he'd be called a sexist and wanted to have sex slaves by somebody. She didn't care. She was a pretty tough guy, Joanne. <laughs> yeah, Joanne was pretty cool. She was pretty cool. What happened here? All right, so that's, now let's talk about it. Depression was one that we talked about a lot. Uh, autism is another one we can, I think, spend a bit of time on. This is characterized by a lot of, lack of social interaction, poor interaction. Um, even though the diagnostic criteria say that, uh, you, the lack of social interaction, it's not so much that as it, it being inappropriate. A lot of people don't know how to, how to respond to someone who doesn't look them in the eye when they're your own kid. Right? So you get a lot of people, I think, that never really, a lot of autistic people never really learn how to do social interaction. They do it poor to begin with, but the idea that they want to be isolated all the time and all that stuff, the data show that's not true. When you ask autistic people, do you want to have no friends and you, do you want to be isolated? They go, no. They want to have friends. They don't know how to keep friends. They don't know how to keep them. Okay? So that's an important distinction that hopefully when the DSM-5 comes out, they'll, they'll get in there. Uh, you'll see a lot of repetitive behavior, uh, this kind of thing, arm flapping. Or it may be something else, but this is a very common symptom, the arm, arm flapping. Um, often a fixation on some characteristic of something um, or just something. So the, the thing may be some kind of uh, odd interest someone might have. Like they may be interested in movie studios and credits. Uh, my son's like that. He, he's, he's just obsessed with what studios make what movies. And then he sits down and he writes out his own movie credits for movies that, that don't exist. Like, he's already got the whole cast ready for Angry Birds, the movie. It's starring Jim Carrey, Samuel L. Jackson. There <laughs> goes this whole thing. It's, 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 it's this huge... I, I, who else is in it? Ice Cube. Ice Cube. Ice Cube's in a lot of the ones that he has. Um, it's produced by... I don't know who produced it, but I, I believe it's a Spielberg film, too. Like, he's, he's going on, you know? He's like... I keep at, where are you getting the budget for this movie? You know? And then it says like things like based on a book by Tom Clancy. It's like, no, I don't think Tom Clancy wrote an angry Birds book. Um, so that's something, and of course, he used to also be obsessed with uh, plane crashes. And he still knows about every plane crash that's ever happened. Like, it's creepy. It's that Rain Man thing. You can just say, what happened on August 26, 2001? He said, Air Transat flight. And he tells you, like, the, who was flying the plane? Captain Robert Pichet. See, and through osmosis, I know a lot of it, and it bothers me. Um, many are sort of retarded. And retar I'm using retarded here clinically. I'm not using, like, Anne freaking Coulter. I'm using clinically, meaning, like, two standard deviations from the mean below normal intelligence. 
So the problem with that word is it's, it's getting to the point now where it's stopping to have meaning. Uh, developmentally delayed, I don't like, because you never, if it's delayed and you never get there, it, retarded actually means stopped or slowed. It's a good word, and it's been co-opted by jerks. But um, right now you hear about 50% are, are, are mentally retarded. But you hear, that number keeps changing, and it's because we're starting to understand a little bit better how to reach people with autism. So the number seems to be going down in a way, but that's because I think we're getting, it's not like autistic people are suddenly getting smarter. It's that we're getting better at understanding them and, and communicating with them. Okay? Okay. What's the evolutionary angle here? The idea of a theory of mind module. So it makes sense in the theory of mind module, the idea that we under we can read each other's minds. When I asked my son, we had a, a friend that comes over and plays with him, Ben. Uh, not Ben, um, well, Ben does too, but Dylan. And if John's good at video games, like he's good at like, first person shooters, and he'll play with Dylan, and Dylan's okay too. Dylan has his own Xbox Live account and all that stuff, but John's just better. And John will be winning a, a free for all match against Dylan 24 0. And Dylan gets one kill and John screams at him. You killed me! You know, and he gets all upset and I gotta go tell him to stop acting like that because, you know. And I always say the same thing. Do you, th you think Dylan likes when you behave this way? And he looks at me and he says, no. But it's, it's like you see this light, light bulb go over his head and say, never occurred to me before. Right? So I constantly have to explain to him and so does his sister and his mother explain to him that that's not how the humans behave. We don't do things like this. People don't like it. And I'm always saying, you know, think about how you would feel if someone did that. And he's starting to understand that, but most of us, that just happens naturally. Okay? So it might be a, a defective theory of mind module. There's the notion that Sacha Baron Cohen has... Simon Baron Cohen. Sasha Baron Cohen is Borat. No, it's, it's, his, it's his cousin. It actually is. Simon Baron Cohen is Sasha Baron Cohen's cousin, so Borat's cousin literally is one of the world's foremost experts on autism. And he looks like him, too, so it's really weird to see him talk, and it's like, Borat's telling me Borat has a research chair at Cambridge? And he says that it might be what's called a hypermale brain that autistic people have. So, focus on detail, not focused on emotion at all. Um, we know that male versus female reading of facial expressions for emotion, women are way better at that than men. It's, very, it's a small but significant difference, let's say that. That said, autistic people are horrible at it. My son constantly looks at us and says, what feeling are you? He wants to know how we feel. When, when anything at all, where he can hear any emotion in your voice. He wants to know what your emotion is. So he wants to understand it. And you and I can get that in a second. Right? So I look at him and say, come on, let's get going. What's more feeling you? I'm getting a little frustrated with how slow you're getting ready for school. Right? And you would know, to tone my voice, what I meant when I said it, but he has to ask. And he's learning. So there's that. So that maybe that's a male thing. You tend to see a lot more, um, like I said, focus on detail rather than big picture kind of things. 
Women have more friends than men do. So the social aspect. So maybe being really, really, really male. This may explain why there's way more little boys with autism and men with autism than women or girls. Well, I was just going to ask, when would you say for girls with autism? Well, I mean, it may still be the case they have a hypermale brain that would explain why it's like a 6 to 1 ratio. It's interesting to you know that kids of scientists are way more likely to have autistic kids than kids of non-scientists. Um, this is some of Baron Cohen's work as well. Well, being a scientist is you have to be kind of cold and calculating. You have to be detail-focused. And just a bit of this. Enough of this is good. Right? Enough just the right amount of that is a good thing. And it's interesting because Baron Cohen has come out with what he calls his, your autism quotient. It's a, you can find it online, um, fill it out. It's a, it's a, a paper pencil test. It's not a diagnostic tool. Okay, you gotta understand that. So if you take this test, I don't want you coming to me saying, turns out I have autism. Um, but what it does is it, it, it correlates nicely with severity of autism. So it's a way for him in his experiments, in his studies, to take a look and see how Basically, that's how autistic someone is. And it's also interesting because you can then measure yourself, and you will see that the average person, I think it's 50 items, the average person scores about a 10. Uh, an autistic person, someone on the autism spectrum, uh, is, I think their score starts at 35. I score a 31. Now, it doesn't mean I'm autistic. Yeah, it doesn't mean that. And I'm an excellent driver. But... Rain Man, nobody? Nothing? Um, I know it came up before you were all born, but it's still a great movie, you shall see it. I do have a lot of the characteristics. Um, I get obsessed with things. When I was in grade four, I decided I'd learn the flag of every country in the world. And every cap of every country, and the unit of money in the highest mountain. Because there's something wrong with me. Um, because I've got such an interest in it. Right? Uh, and there's other things too. So it's interesting that, again, I don't have autism, but I may have close to it. Like I may have certain, let's call them, extremes of, 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 of certain characteristics, let's say that. Okay. Okay. Again, I'm not claiming that I have it or anything or I'm disabled. I am disabled, it's my vision. It's got nothing to do with... Uh, with, with, with autism. A question about autism, because it's interesting stuff, and I think that, you know, there was a time, like I said, the, the, a little bit of this is probably good. All right. Time to talk about schizophrenia, I think we do, or as my old abnormal psych professor, Dick Neufeld, used to call it, schizophrenia. But the weird thing was, it was the only word he rolled his R's in. It was. Like he'd say, Ranch dressing, right? Or through, but schizophrenia was the strangest thing. And he wore a leather suit. For it was the 1980s, and that's how people dressed. You hear a lot of this, you know, crazy people, pretty creative. Yeah, just on the edge of sanity. No, they are. 
Um, the, the data show pretty. The problem, of course, is measuring creativity. I talked about this the other day. If you're going to measure creativity, it's tough to measure. This is not an easy thing to measure. There are measures. There's the remote associates test, which is like that game Tribond, if you've ever played that, uh, where you get three words and you've got to find out what word associates with those three words. Uh, heroin, cigarette, none. Habit. Right? Because nuns wear habits, they would do our habits, right? So that kind of thing. Um, that's one measure of creativity. There are other things. They aren't great, but we can look at schizophrenics in general, and there's really no, well, I say maybe not, there's no real consensus out there saying that schizophrenics are creative. The interesting thing is, though, you look at their relatives, their relatives were creative, then people don't have schizophrenic relatives. So what you want to do now is drive your brother insane. Maybe become a radar artist. No, it doesn't work that way. But we know that that's interesting. This, is, this does seem pretty clear. So that's kind of cool. So there might be some relationship there. I'm not sure. Um, again, schizophrenia, so it might be that it's a little bit of it is good. A little bit of thinking strangely and not understanding reality completely is probably a good thing for being creative. A lot of it means you have your paranoid and all that stuff, right? You're paranoid and all that stuff, using the technical terms. Um, okay, conclusions about disorders and evolution. This is really early days stuff. Some of this is really promising. I think the depression stuff is neat. I think the autism stuff is neat. I think they both have a lot of promise in us understanding and maybe leading to therapy someday. Um, it could. Right? It doesn't make it all in the head or normal or better or, you know, that goes to fallacy. Don't fall for it, is what I'm saying there. Okay, so just because something is evolution, it is bio biological, doesn't make it better or, or worse. It doesn't, uh, it doesn't make the normal better or worse, right? Typically, normal is better because it's easier to get along in life when you're normal. Let's face it. It's way easier than being depressed or schizophrenic or autistic or having PTSD, right? Uh, but it doesn't make it morally right, okay? And again, I assume I'm going to stop making those disclaimers at the end of classes and the beginning and four or five times during. Okay. Questions about the stuff? All right. Thanks, guys. Good weekend. I never thought of habits when
podcast is released under a Creative Commons copyright share like 2.5 Canada. Uh, feel free to redistribute the information as you see fit, but please don't make any money out of it. And if you do, you got to tell me because I'm reserving that right. Giving up all the other ones, including uh, mash it up any way you want. Okay. Um, also, of course, give me attribution. If you want to get a hold of me, my email address is dave.broadbeck.com at algomau.ca. My website is people.auc.ca slash broadbeck slash blog. Uh, most of the music, uh, all the music's Podsafe, and most of it comes from GarageBand.com or the Podsafe Music Network. See you next time.